one of the most common counseling situations that any pastor faces is the counseling situation where a believer in Christ comes distressed and needing help because they're married to a person who's not yet a Christian. To be sure, sometimes there are Christian husbands who find themselves married to unsaved wives, but also to be sure, it's far, far, far more common that a born-again wife finds herself, for any number of circumstances, married to a man, a husband, who's not yet a Christian. It's a very, very common thing. Many, many times in my 30 years of pastoring and in the years of others who pastor, I am sure that we have turned to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, because these precious verses give us God's clear, definitive direction and will when a Christian woman, wife, finds herself married to an unsaved husband. I'm going to jump into the text at 1 Peter 3 and read with you verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. I hope that you'll remember that the theme we've identified for the book of 1 Peter is refiner's fire, living in victory while facing opposition. What this text is saying, that for some of us, the opposition we live with sleeps in the bed beside us. The subtitle on the theme of the book is Suffering for Righteousness' Sake in the Hope of Glory. The first thing that I noticed in verse 1 of chapter 3 are the words, in the same way. Obviously, an inductive Bible student needs to ask after seeing in the same way the question, in what way? And we go back to the closing verses of chapter 2, the preceding context, to see what that way is. And when you do so, you see that the way being talked about in verse 1 was the way that was identified at the end of chapter 2. And to put it in a short manner, the way identified at the end of chapter 2 is Jesus Christ's way. That's the way. Jesus Christ's way. And what is the Lord Jesus Christ's way? To suffer for doing right. I see that in chapter 2, verse 22. To be our example. I see that in chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus' way is also not returning insult for insult. That's chapter 2, verse 23. And to go on, Jesus' way is never threatening retaliation. I see that in chapter 2, verse 23. And to go on, Jesus' way, the Lord's way, is to continuously entrust himself to his heavenly Father amid his sufferings for doing right. I see that in chapter 2, verse 23. So when chapter 3, verse 1 begins with the words, in the same way, it looks back in chapter 2 into all those ways of how the Lord Jesus Christ lived with difficult suffering. Ladies who are married to men who are not saved, let me show you further in verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive 
to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. We have run into this concept of submission or being submissive more than once in 1 Peter. And of course, this concept of submission or being submissive is not just limited to 1 Peter, it's through the New Testament. What is it? For instance, it says in 1 Peter 2.18 that servants be submissive to your own masters with all respect. The same Greek word is also used in Ephesians 5.21 when we are told, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And the same Greek word for this submission appears in Ephesians 5.22 in the Lord's command to Christian wives there, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And just what then does this key word mean? This word translated be subject or submit. What does it mean? How should a Christian wife be submissive? How should a Christian employee be submissive to his or her boss at work? How should a believer be subject to another believer in our assembly? How should a born-again wife be subject to her own husband as unto her Lord? The Greek word I think I've taught you before here is hupotasso, a compound verb form. Hupo means under, tasso means to stand. This is saying that when we identify persons in our lives, be they employers or other believers in assembly, or a husband, if a wife is married, when God-given authority over you, you stand under that authority. That's being subject to, that's being submissive. It's a choice. You don't check your brain at the door. You don't cease to have talents and gifts and opinions but you orderly, by choice, choose to stand under the person God has put over you in authority, to stand under that person with dignity, and to do it as worship, as unto the Lord. That's what happened in the Godhead. For any of you who might argue, or anyone who might argue, that this being subject to, this submission, is somehow showing inferiority and superiority, that falls apart when you understand that there is the same action going on voluntarily in the Godhead, within the Trinity, that God the Son chose to stand under God the Father. He said in Gethsemane as he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. And God the Holy Spirit voluntarily stands under the authority of God the Father and God the Son. So this submission, this being submissive, has nothing to do with superiority and inferiority. It has to do with functionality. God says to all wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. But God says to the specific wife, who finds herself married for any reason to a lost husband, in verse 3, 1 of 1 Peter, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. The word which is translated disobedient, referencing the unsaved husband, or the NIV calls it do not believe, literally means unpersuaded. 
If you have an unsaved husband, he is currently unpersuaded. Verse 1, with that understanding. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are unpersuaded to the word. God says that even if your husband is unpersuaded about Christ, unpersuaded about salvation, unpersuaded about the gospel, unpersuaded about the Bible being authoritative, unpersuaded, even if he's unpersuaded in all these ways, God says, you obey him. You be submitted to him. You choose to stand under him. Why? You're hearing God's word being taught. Your husband is unpersuaded this morning. You're hearing that God calls you to stand under your husband. And you, in your heart, you're not doing it out loud. But in your heart, you're saying, why? Why? God tells us. God tells us why. Verse 1 tells us why. So that even if any of them who are disobedient to the word they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. That's why. Now, there are two very different concepts of words being referred to here in this particular verse. The word which the unpersuaded, unsaved husband disobeys is God's word, the scriptures, the Holy Bible. And in that light, if you're writing your Bible, you may want to write a capitalized W on that first occurrence of the word in verse 1. A capital W may remind you that the Bible is in view. But as we go on in the same verse 1, we see a second occurrence of the word, word. And this second word ought not to have a capital W on it because it's not a reference to the word of God at all. Rather, it's a reference to spoken words coming out of a Christian wife's mouth toward her husband, hourly, daily, weekly, yearly. So you could leave that second occurrence of the word, word, in verse one with a lowercase w, and perhaps that will remind you that God is referring to your speech as a wife in the second instance. So do you know what verse one is saying, sisters in Christ? It's saying no preaching to your unsaved husband. No spiritual lectures to him. Not even any preachimonies. There was a man who had a terrible marriage. And he went to war in the Second World War, largely to get away from his wife. And she started writing him letters to Europe and had a contentious spirit that she had in person in her letters. He wrote her back and said, honey, will you please quit writing me? I would like to enjoy this war in peace. (laughs) 
uh, the book of Proverbs, more than one place says, it's better to live on the corner of a roof than with a nagging woman. But you say, pastor, how will my husband meet the Lord? How will he trust Jesus to be his savior? I want that for him so much. How will that happen if I don't share Christ with him? Here's how. God promises you that your husband will meet the Lord if your husband's going to meet the Lord by watching your actions speak louder than your consciously withheld words. Isn't that exactly what verse one is saying? In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. One without a word by the behavior of their wives. There was a Hindu woman who was saved gloriously by Jesus Christ and came back to her home, her Hindu home, and her Hindu husband who was unpersuaded. And when she became a follower of Christ, her husband and all of her unsaved Hindu relatives tried to make her life miserable. And one day, a missionary in the region asked her, when your husband is angry and persecutes you, what do you do? And she replied, I just cook the food better and sweep the floor a little cleaner. And when he speaks unkindly, I answer him mildly trying to show him in every way that when I became a Christian, I also became a better wife. Story goes on that that Hindu husband resisted all the sermons of the missionary, but he could not withstand the practical preaching of his wife with a broom, with a guarded mouth. And so wives who have unpersuaded husbands, if your husband is going to be one to Christ by your behavior, you had better know what behavior God expects of you, right? Let's see, verse two. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, Ladies who are married, you are to live chaste and respectful lives. The NIV renders the concept proper lifestyle is purity and reverence. And so on the one hand, you are to keep yourselves pure in every way to the man to whom you are pledged, sexual purity, but also you are to live in a way that you are respectful and reverent to the man who is your husband. And I have a suggestion for you in those times when your husband is not acting worthy of your respect, and that will happen, that you choose to respect the man for his role in your life as being your husband and not wait that his behavior always would be respectable before you would respect him. I have followed American politics for a good number of years, and the comment I'm about to make has nothing to do with the current president. Over the years of watching American politics, there have been presidents that I could not stand. 
And there have been presidents that I really, really liked, but I respected all the presidents because of their office and their role in my country. Your husband, your unpersuaded husband, may not look respectable to you. God says you respect the office that he holds in your life. Pure and respectful behavior is just a part of the lifestyle that God says will preach without words to your unpersuaded husband. So let's go on to see some more, verses three and four. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What God says further about the uh, wife, the Christian wife who is married to an unpersuaded husband is that her life should have an inner beauty. It should have an inside-out gorgeousness. And in verse 3, Christian wives are instructed to be sure that their beauty or their adornment is not merely external, not merely outward. The Greek word which is translated adornment or adorning or beauty, depending on the English translation, is cosmos, from which we get our English word cosmetics. Ladies, God is saying to let your makeup only be on your face is to sell it short. But let your enhancements to your beauty be also from your inner person. To be beautiful from your heart out. To be gorgeous in your demeanor. To be attractive by cultivating a gentle and a quiet outlook. The Christian wife has stopped short if she only concentrates on her outward appearance. She must also give serious, careful attention to her inner beauty, the attitude of her heart, the quality of her spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in her life, the character qualities of Christ. And so, sisters in the Lord, God is suggesting that the most important cosmetics are not put on your lips or your eyes, or your cheeks. No, the most important cosmetics are put on your heart, on your mind, on your soul, on your tongue. Outward adorning, to be sure, is nice, but it's not essential. By contrast, inward adorning is more than just a good idea. It's a command of scripture. And this is so because that kind of inner beauty is undiminished by time. That kind of inner beauty is imperishable. That kind of inside beauty is valued by God more than even your husband will come to value it. And so, married ladies, your gentle and your quiet spirit is the best place to begin looking your best. Looking your best for God, 
and looking your best for your unpersuaded husband. Listen to what Albert Barnes has written about the winsomeness of inner beauty of a believing wife. It is not by a harsh, fretful, complaining temper. It is by kindness, tenderness, and love. It is by demonstrating the excellency of religion, by patience when provoked, meekness when injured, love when despised, forbearance when words of harshness and irritation are used, by kind and affectionate conversation when alone, when the heart is tender, when calamities visit the family, when a husband will not hear, God can hear. When he is angry, morose, or unkind, God is gentle, tender, and kind. And when a husband turns away from the voice, God's ear is open, and God is ready to hear and to bless. So we might say the challenge is not so much to declare a message as it is to demonstrate the character of Christ. This is a God-sized job. We look at verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just before we go there, I should point out that those who would legalistically say that a woman ought, in verse 3, that a woman ought not to uh, do braided hair and wear gold jewelry, then that person would also have to conclude that they aren't to put on dresses. I just thought I'd point that out. Now, looking at verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Hoped in God, that's the key. They hoped in God, so we better understand what that means. What did it mean that they hoped in God? What will it mean that you will hope in God if your husband is unpersuaded? What does it mean to hope in God? Go back to chapter two, verse 23, please. And while being reviled, this is the Lord Jesus, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, watch it, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Righteously. That's what it means to hope in God. And the holy women of old did, and the holy women of now should consistently do what Jesus Christ did, namely, keep on entrusting themselves to God who judges righteously. The person who hopes in God leaves their ultimate well-being in God's hands. And this kind of Continuous faith in God frees those who have this kind of hoping in God, frees those kind of wives of unpersuaded husbands, frees them up to be gentle and quiet, calm and Christ-like. Frees them up. Verse 6 cites Sarah, Abraham's wife, as a prime example of a woman with inner beauty who hoped in God, a woman with inner beauty who hoped in God and stood under her husband. And he wasn't that easy to stand under. He's a patriarch, he's a father of the faith, but he was a rascal too. Verse 
The verse is reminding us that Sarah obeyed and respected her husband. In fact, she called him Lord. That's with a lowercase l, not a capital L, rather than the capital L. It indicates that she had true respect for her husband. But it wasn't always easy to stand under Abraham or to respect him. He didn't always make choices that honored God or or preferred his wife. He wasn't always worthy of Sarah's respect. Do you remember that twice he lied about Sarah, saying that she was his sister and not his wife in Egypt? She was such an outwardly beautiful woman, he thought that if they knew that, he was her, that she was his wife, he was her husband, they'd kill him so they could get her in the harem. So he says, oh yeah, that's my sister. Said that twice. Putting her, throwing her under the bus in danger that somebody would take her into his harem. But Abram said, well, my neck will be safe. Twice. He did that. He feared for his own life more than he protected his own wife. Or do you remember that Abraham allowed Sarah to mistreat their maid, handmaid Hagar, after Sarah became jealous over Hagar becoming pregnant by Abraham? And I actually wonder what Sarah was thinking when she saw her only biological son that she knew to be the son of promise, the heir of the covenants that Abraham had received from God. I wonder what she wondered when she saw that son of promise, probably a teenager, leaving to go with her husband to Mount Moriah with a donkey and with two servant boys and with wood for a fire and with a sharp knife. Wonder what she thought. It wasn't easy to respect and to stand under Abraham, and he was a believer. But Sarah could only call her husband Abraham Lord, little L, because she respected him even when he was not respectable. And she only could respect her unrespectable husband because she entrusted herself to her God, and she entrusted herself to her God enough that she chose to submit to her husband. Verse 6 calls every believing wife to similar trust in God, to similar submission to husband, to similar doing of right without fearing the consequences of doing what is right. Verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children. That is, you'll look like her if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And so, dear married sisters in the Lord, married sisters who sit beside in the congregation today, an unpersuaded husband perhaps, sisters in Christ who are married and you will go back in your car or on the jitney to where you live and there will be an unpersuaded husband waiting for you at your house. You who long for your husbands to be saved, cultivate. the lifestyle of beauty that God deems beautiful. Cultivate the lifestyle of beauty that will be an extremely powerful preaching to your husband without you saying a word. St. Francis of Assisi once invited a young monk to join him on a trip down to town to preach. And honored to be given the invitation, the monk readily accepted. All day long, he and Francis walked through the streets, byways, and alleys, and even into the suburbs, 
They rubbed shoulders with hundreds of people. At the day's end, the two headed back home. Not even once had Francis addressed a crowd, nor had he talked to anyone about the gospel. Greatly disappointed, the young companion said, I thought we were going into town to preach. Francis responded, my son, we have preached. We were preaching while we were walking. We were seen by many, and our behavior was closely watched. It is of no use to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere we walk. It is of no use to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere we walk. And so, believing wife, know that your unpersuaded husband is watching you all the time. What will he see? What has he seen? And maybe if he's seen things you don't wish he has seen, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Satan would say, oh, it's too late. You've blown it. He'll never be saved. Satan would say that. God would say where there's life, there's hope. Where there's Holy Spirit, there's power. Where there's the word of God, there's obedience. Why don't you go home to your unsaved husband and show him as an unpersuaded husband that you are standing under him, that you will seek to obey him, that you will respect him, that you will try to live with an inside beauty and purity, that you will try to display a consistent respect for him, that he will be able to see in you an inward and an, and an outward beauty, a gentleness, a quietness, a Christ-likeness in your demeanor, that he will see a fearlessness in you as you entrust yourself to your God. In those ways, your husbands can be one without a word. Let's pray. With the poet Orsborn, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, all his wonderful passion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Amen.